Today, we need the correct mix of voices, ambition, and action. The rapidly changing climate is sounding an alarm to the world to step up on adaptation, to address loss and damage, and to act now. Uh, we've signed a climate convention. We've asked others to join us. Most of the observed increase in temperatures is very likely due to the observed increase in anthropogenic GHG concentrations. Our world, my friends, stands at a fork in the road. And if we act now, and we act together, we can protect our precious planet. Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania, and to this special series on COP27, which is underway in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Over the two weeks of COP, I'm holding short conversations with experts from the University of Pennsylvania on a number of key issues that are being discussed at this year's Global Climate Change Conference. In this episode, I'll be talking with Coco Warner, a visiting fellow at Penn's Perry World House. Coco is manager of the UNFCCC's Vulnerability Subdivision and a lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's fifth and sixth assessment reports. We'll be talking about COP27, which has been tagged as the Implementation COP, and why implementation may itself be the Achilles heel of the COP process and the global effort to address climate change. Coco, welcome to the podcast. Andy, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to join you from Egypt, where COP27 is reaching its last little bit here. Well, it was a pleasure to meet you last week as well when I was in Charm. Uh, it, it, was, it was a very new experience for me. I know you've Noisy. been through this process many times. <laughs> yeah, that's now, right. So you're in Charm for the entire two weeks of COP27. And, and one of the things that I learned last week, again, on my first visit to a COP, is that week one and week two are very different. I wonder if you could tell us how. Sure. Um, so a couple of things, uh, and I'm going to describe what happened at this COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. So the very, very beginning, many, many world leaders actually came and they opened the Conference of the Parties. And you've seen that happen in a few of our conferences. It happened, for example, in Paris, which ushered in the Paris Agreement in 2015. So just to get started, world leaders came together and pointed to the horizon and said, we're going there. We want to go to a resilient, adapted, um, greenhouse, low greenhouse gas emissions world in the future. That's a future everyone can look forward to. Um, and then the technical work began. So in that first week after the world leaders had pointed the direction, the really hard work of figuring out how countries actually implement the Paris Agreement together um, continued. And this is something that countries are working together for many years, um, but the urgency is growing. And the way that our process goes is at the end of that first week, it's almost if, as if there are multiple lanes, like in a swimming competition, and there are different, there's a lane for mitigation and a lane for transparency and a lane for adaptation and a lane for whatever, finance, technology, implementation. And all of the different delegates are working as teams, 
going down their lanes, trying to deliver a set of draft decisions about how countries want to work together or in their own kind of national or regional um, areas of work in order to get implementation of the Paris Agreement. And then the second week, which is what we're in right now at the time of this recording, ministers start coming in. As you can imagine, at a technical level, there are some things that you can't resolve at that level. So ministers come in and help provide that political um, gravitas to say, look, it's hard, but we do want to do this together. So let's get over those those hurdles, and they bring us then to the next level. And then finally, right at the right at the end, the president of the conference of the parties. Every year, there's a different one. This year, it's Egypt will come in and do the final fine touches, often to the highest levels of government, um, and reach an agreement that will then move the process forward. And then we begin for the next year. Um, so that that's a broad description of the first week and the second week. So you're very much in the middle of everything that's going on at COP at, in your role. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about exactly what you do at COP. Yeah, sure. So my day job and my COP job are complementary. Um, here at the Conference of the Parties, for each one of those lanes that I described, there's a support team of the Secretariat to the UNFCCC process. That's UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. On climate change. So the teams that I lead support each one of those negotiating items. So each lane, if you're, again, thinking of a swimming competition, comes from the agenda. And so there's there's one agenda item and a team supporting it. And the teams are tiny, two people, sometimes a whole team supporting different agenda items. But what it looks like is the my support teams go, they listen to parties discuss the different items. And then afterwards, they come back they write up their notes. Um, if they're, they're two team captains, by the way, they're called co-facilitators for each one of these agenda items. And the co-facilitators, if um, they've been given a request by the parties, the parties are countries. Um, if the countries ask the co-facilitators to produce a draft, that's what my team then actually does. They take the notes, they've listened, and they'll create a draft document and that draft document will go in then to the discussions the next day. And so countries look at these draft texts or these one-pagers, so to speak, and they'll look at the words on those um, documents and they'll say, do we agree on this? Do we not? How can we refine further? And it is through those documents we advance towards the end of the week when there is a draft decision that all of the parties, all of the countries actually agree upon and then it goes into the second week. So that's what my team does. And my job is to provide moral support, to provide guidance, to be an editor and all of those things to make sure they're maybe caffeinated at, at strange hours of the night. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's my job here at the conference of the parties. It's a it's challenging, wonderful, really interesting and um, fantastic and challenging, as I said, to listen to countries discuss issues that are of common importance, and to listen and try and forge a way forward together. So COP27 is the implementation COP. And the, right. the tagline for this year is Together for Implementation. 
Yeah. Why is implementation sharply in focus this year? Yeah. So the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change is 30 years old um, this year. So if you go all the way back to 1992, there was enough science at the time that scientists had indicated that human activity was changing the concentration of gases in the atmosphere, oxygen, carbon, methane, or all of the, I'm not a chemist, so. You can imagine. But there, these changes in the Earth's atmosphere also translate into changes for people like us on the ground. So back in 1992, countries came together and agreed, oof, we definitely don't want to interfere with the Earth's atmosphere because that could be dangerous for all people on Earth and nature. And so they set this big agreement, let's avoid dangerous anthropogenic climate change. And that was the original convention. Of course, after that, countries have to decide, well, how are we going to do that? It took several more years to decide on that how, and the first instrument, legal instrument of the UNFCCC was something called the Kyoto Protocol. And a lot of people have heard about the Kyoto Protocol, but maybe aren't quite so familiar what it's about. Um, and that was a commitment, especially by um, industrialized countries, to reduce their emissions or the greenhouse gases or pollution that they put into the atmosphere. And, and they did that for, for several years. But what happened in the meantime is, in some ways, the good news about development, many countries, including China, went from the state that they were at the end of the Cold War to really being industrial powerhouses today. Um, and so their greenhouse gas emissions, the pollution that they're putting into the atmosphere grew so in spite of our convention being successful in a way, um, the real root cause of the problem for humanity kept growing. Then you have the Paris Agreement. And now here we are, seven years after the Paris Agreement, and people all over the world, whether you're in the South living in a small island, whether you're in the far, far North having very hot temperatures and forest fires, every region of the world, people are feeling climate impacts. And that is what brings us to implementation. You'll hear just even today walking into the conference venue, youth are out in front with signs saying, you know, secure our future. We need a future too. Let's get this done. And what I said about like my team's producing text and agreements, that's good. Countries do need a space where they can decide the way forward together. And now, because of the speed of climate change, we, we have to change gears and continue and upscale what we're doing on the ground to protect our communities and to help countries make this shift in our energy systems, in our agricultural systems, et cetera, to, um, to keep life safe and to keep nature thriving into the future. So that's why we're talking about implementation together here at COP27. Now, you did mention uh, when we spoke last week that, as you've just started to get to right here, that implementation is a daunting challenge for the COP process. Mm. Why is it possible that the process is not, in quotes, built for implementation? At the very beginning of the COP, I had a chance to walk just through the conference venue with the business leader, big industrial um, uh, kind of group, and he's the leader of their foundation. 
And as we were walking through, he was drawing some analogies to the business world. He's like, oh, okay, I can see how you need coordinated action and milestones and agreement. And then you go out and do and come back together. And as we as we finished our, our walk around, he looked back at where negotiators were talking. And then he looked just ahead of him to where... Um, civil society and church groups and islanders and indigenous peoples and farmers and like we have this whole pavilion area and he said oh the negotiations are like like the like the engine room or they're they're really the 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 center that's giving the directions and pointing the direction but all of these different actors in society that are here in this pavilion area are like the gearbox and the trick is you need that interlocking space and governments really know how to talk to governments and business talks to business and civil society is so good at all of, all of the networks. But the trick to implementation is getting our different worlds to talk with one another and to figuring out the interfaces. And I'll give you an example. Um, other friends here at the Conference of the Parties are working on cities. In fact, some of the University of Pennsylvania's um, delegation are really world leaders on cities and mayor's networks. And in our process, it's designed for countries but of course, cities are where so many people work and live, and there's so much infrastructure there. And just this, un, not totally untapped, but you can just imagine the potential of cities and urban areas. And they don't naturally have a space yet in this process. So it's a question of how do you get that connectivity? How do you link up networks? How do you make sure that what's decided here can actually roll out? How would you make sure that cities have um, public transportation networks to help people be a little bit less re reliant on transportation of today? It's going to be different in the future. So I think those are some of the huge opportunities, but also it's challenging. It's hard. So let me ask you this. So what challenges or dangers does this difficulty in implementation and also including all actors mm. raise for reaching the goals laid out in the Paris Agreement? So you ask about dangers. Um, there are some real dangers for humanity and for nature. Um, part of it has to do with time because our greenhouse gas emissions continue to rise and there really is a, a limited budget in our atmosphere um, without going into all of that, that discussion. There really is limited time. The best available science suggests that globally um, the world may be headed towards a 1.5 degrees Celsius. Some scientists describe it as a threshold for earth systems where, you know, after that point, you can get accelerating adverse climate change impacts, whether it's sea level rise or extreme heat in the summer or changing rainfall patterns, things that really impact nature and people. Um, now, when we come to people, this is not easy, but there's also this potential for connections and big change can happen through networks if networks are designed to quickly disseminate good practices and results and information about how to do things right. So I think in some ways that's a little bit like a knife's edge when we talk about adaptation. Of course, you're going to want to do adaptation to climate change at scale. 
we're doing things at a very, we're going to need to do action at a very large scale. So a risk is that we get it wrong and head off in the wrong direction and then find out a couple of years later, oh, we didn't want to go in that direction. Mm-hmm. Now, what are some of the ways that we can offset those risks? We're headed into an uncertain time with a lot of um, variability, instability. But I think what we're learning worldwide is, and I'm just going to name one opportunity among many, many, many. I mentioned networks. There are so many youth here. There are so many farmers here. Um, There are women's groups and people from all over the global south and the global north. If we can find a way to listen and to be inclusive and to make sure that the people whose lives are most impacted also can can convey their experiences and their needs to the people here at the conference of the parties who are trying to reach decisions together. And if there are mechanisms or consultation processes so that that listening can turn into action that takes those lessons into account as we design and roll out transportation systems and energy systems and new ways of feeding the planet and all of those things will have a much better chance of reaching our ambitious goals that are in the Paris Agreement without leaving people behind. That is a huge challenge, but it's also an opportunity that, that I really hope that we'll take. One final question for you right here, and I don't want to ignore the current geopolitical context in which all this is happening. We've got the war in Ukraine, we've got fuel shortages, economic and food price inflation. How might these all create further challenges to implementation? Absolutely. If you talk to anybody who's paying an energy bill, I mentioned farmers out in their fields. So many people around the world are really feeling the pressure, whether it's economic pressure, pressure to put food on the table. And um, I think many of us just are trying to get through the, uh, through, through the end of the day. Now, bringing that back to climate change and why, again, the theme of COP27 is implementation together, let's take the example of the price of food. One crisis in Europe, um, the situation in the Ukraine, one blocked port in Odessa has rippled across the world and has contributed to the price of cooking oil quadrupling or the price of of wheat. We're here in Egypt, world's largest importer of wheat, and the price of wheat is rising. It's really hard for families. If one blocked port can cause that much kind of chaos for families, we're learning what climate change could mean for all of us. And that's a very hard lesson, but there's also a silver lining because it really reminds us that we are a system. We are a global community. The solutions are often very local, but we do need coordination. And that's what brings us together in this process every single year to touch base and to find out where the challenges and how do we address them in a coordinated way? How do we look to the future and make sure that the children of today have a stable future to look forward to? And that's both the challenge as well as the opportunity. And and again, COP27, trying to implement all of our, our commitments together. Coco, thank you very much for talking.
It's been great, Andy. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this special episode of the Energy Policy Now podcast and to this series on COP27 underway in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Check out Energy Policy Now on the Climate Center website, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to keep up with research and events from the Climate Center, visit our website. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now and have a great day. 